0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au
1: well good afternoon everyone um, my name's Leanne Smith and I'm the director of the Whitlam Institute um, I'm also lucky enough to be on the advisory committee of the Caldor Center um, and my own background um, is as an Australian diplomat working for Foreign Affairs and then for the UN um, in the field where where I've seen a lot of um, the effects of displacement and also at headquarters in New York where I've seen a lot of the high-end politics in the Security Council and the General Assembly, which is why I'm very happy to be um, and happy and honored to be chairing this panel this afternoon. For those of us who have been in or around um, diplomacy, either bilateral or multilateral, I suppose it's not really a surprise uh, to know that um, a government's position on a particular important issue, like for exa- example um, refugee protection, or the refugee or migrant compacts. It's not unsurprising that um, sometimes a government's position may have absolutely nothing to do with the substantive issue being addressed at that time. It could have something to do with the position and other countries taking in a different forum, such as a different UN committee, or a, a position could be formed on the basis of a bilateral arrangement, whether it's a trade arrangement or a security arrangement. So we know that uh, diplomacy has those, those features to it and it quite, quite complicated issues working behind the scenes. We also know that d- diplomacy can also be very opportunistic. And I was thinking of a quote from Aesop um, when he said, look and see which way the wind blows before committing yourself. So we see a lot of that in diplomacy as well. So that's why I think this panel is particularly important. We're here this afternoon to talk about behind the scenes on refugee diplomacy in particular. And we've got a wonderful group of panellists um, to address that topic and to discuss the issues with you. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Upper Jock Bia arrived in Australia with her family when she was only two years of age. She's completed a Bachelor of Social Work at Western Sydney University. She's chairperson and co-founder of South Sudan Voices of Salvation. She's a youth advisor for Multicultural New South Wales, Mayan New South Wales Multicultural Youth Ambassador, Youth Participation Officer with Cumberland Council, and she was also a refugee youth advocate representing Australia and New Zealand at UNHCR in Geneva in 2017. She was a member of the team undertaking a gender audit of the Global Compact on Refugees. And if I'm not mistaken, she's also a nominee for an Australian Human Rights Award. Is that right? Good luck with that. Um, Our second panelist is Erica Feller, who many of you know. Erica served as Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at UNHCR from 2005 to 2013. She served 14 years with DFAT followed by 26 years with UNHCR where she was the High Commissioner's representative in Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei. She was Regional Coordinator for Status Determination for the Indo-Chinese refugee outflow and Director of the Department of International Protection. Erica is a Fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne where she's also taken up work as a professorial fellow with the university's School of Government. And our last panellist today is John Quinn, who served 39 years as a career officer in the Australian Foreign Service also. Most recently, from 2014 to 2017, he served as Australia's ambassador and permanent representative to the UN in Geneva and to the Conference on Disarmament there. In Geneva, he served as chair of the Council of the International Organization for Migration from 2016 to 17. And he's held diplomatic posts in Honolulu, Tokyo, Manila, Nairobi, and New York. In Canberra, his work mostly focused um, uh, around his role as Assistant Secretary in the International Security Division. And he also led branches dealing with Southeast Asia, New Zealand, and the Pacific, the Middle East, nuclear policy, and cultural relations. As you can see, a highly qualified panel to talk to us this afternoon. Um, I would just say that we had hoped to have an Australian government representative on this panel this afternoon, but unfortunately, um, that wasn't possible. Um, and just speaking for myself personally, I think that's a real shame, given the richness of the contributions that have been made here today. But we will, we will carry on um, with the three panelists, um, who, I said, as I said, are very qualified. So we're going to take a slightly different approach to this panel. Um, we're going to be have a more conversational panel. I'm going to ask a couple of questions of each of the panellists and then open up the floor for the majority of the time for, for you to engage and ask questions. So let me get the ball rolling with the person who I might um, feel is perhaps most qualified uh, presenting at this conference today to talk about refugee protection. Jok. a question for you, if you don't mind, about your own background and your journey um, and how it's led you to your role as multicultural youth ambassador, and what kind of contribution you feel like you can make to diplomacy around refugee protection in that role.
0: Thank you. Um, a bit about my background. Uh, like you said earlier, um, I was came to Australia in nineteen ninety seven, so I was just two years old. Um, so young. <laughs> but um, I'm in a family of eight. So I am number five in the children, and then my little sister was born here in Australia. So what had happened was um, a war broke out in Sudan. It was known as Sudan at the time, and my parents had to flee to Ethiopia, where they were settled in a refugee camp there. They had my two other brothers, and then they had to flee again to Kakuma refugee camp, which was where I was born. Uh, We didn't have to stay there too long after that, before we were resettled in Australia Uh, and we were resettled in Bondi and then after that um, to the Southern Shire. So what kind of led me to become a youth ambassador was being born um, in displacement and knowing that, okay, this does not define my future, this is just my present and being appreciative of the refugee camp Um, all the organisations that were there, um, including UNHCR who had set that up to start with, um, to provide that protection for us, really was also a driving force for me to want to give back and help others who weren't as fortunate enough to um, be able to leave that situation. Uh, So coming to Australia, my parents um, both have been back to South Sudan and Kenya uh, to help and to give back Uh, in the ways that they could. Um, They also both have brought over 60 family and friends to Australia, uh, so they could be resettled and and start a new life here. And then um, the Global Refugee Youth Consultations, I think, was uh, one of the bigger turning points for me, uh, which was led by UNHCR and other organisations in 2015, which was an initiative where they decided, let's ask refugee young people if they were in a position of power, what decisions would they make, which was a huge shift. And for us, we were like, you're kidding me. Like, <laughs> UNHCR is asking for my opinion. Um, so that was awesome. So what had happened was um, Linda and the um, forced migration unit Came to Mayan, which is a multicultural youth um, advocacy network, to train us in uh, human rights. Um, yeah, human rights approach to doing consultations, and from there, um, a number of us were trained in how to consult young people. So we did 13 consultations around Australia. Uh, and from there, a number of young people who were a part of the consultations went to Geneva to um, yeah to present what the findings were. Uh, this happened all over the world, so it wasn't just in Australia. Um, it, it was a global movement, uh, which was very exciting because the year after, uh, I went to Geneva and was uh, delivering feedback on that, and I met. Many young people from around the world who had been a part of the same consultation, but were also full of energy, so excited um, that the tables have been turned in a way that um, the people who are experiencing, um, who are refugees, who have the lived experience, uh, are now providing the solutions for the better outcome. Uh, which was yeah, which was definitely a turning point for me.
1: Thanks very much. Maybe I'll, I'll just ask you a follow-on question. What, what prospects do you think there are? We had questions earlier today about the role of civil society um, in, in taking the compacts forward. Do you feel confident that there is going to be a place at the table for refugees themselves as this work goes forward? Uh,
0: we've definitely lobbied for it in Geneva. Um, I think it's vital uh, for the compacts to be um, successful... Um, there needs to be a platform of feedback where people who are receiving um, what's happening, who are in the refugee situation, who are in displacement uh, and who have the lived experience to come and have a seat at the table and openly be able to provide feedback and say, hey, this has happened. This worked, this didn't work. A possible solution is this. How can we work together to make this happen? And if this happens, then I think the global compacts will be very successful.
1: Thank you very much, Abadok. Erica, if I could ask you, given your um, extensive experience both working on these issues for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but also for such a long time with UNHCR, I think especially for younger people in the audience, it'd be really great for us to hear from you about what you've observed in terms of trends around international cooperation and negotiations on on issues of refugee protection over the over the period that you've been working on on these issues and how it's changed over time.
2: Thanks, Deanne. I'm glad you gave me a bit of a heads up on that question before we <laughs> joined this panel because it's a it's a complicated question and you can answer it in a number of ways, uh, including very openly. I'm reminded. To, as a preface to what I'm going to say of an interview which was done with me by Walid Ali and you will all know who Walid Ali is and he's quite a hard hitting kind of guy and he was asking me questions. I'd only just come back from to Australia from UNHCR and I was being very guarded as all good UN officials and good government officials are and he sort of was saying, well, you know, there must be something more to this question. There must be some more answer behind it can't you just let it all hang out, he said. (laughs) This is over the airwaves. Um, So anyhow, I'll try and do my best with the question and be a little bit better than I would have been five years ago when I first came back. Um, I thought about it and I... Essentially, I would say, without wanting to simplify this too much, that there are uh, five trends that I would comment on which really, to my mind, changed the way... Uh, an organisation like UNHCR engages with states and non-government organisations on refugee protection and the way um, UNHCR has to really think about what is refugee protection today. When I first joined the organisation back in the early 80s or the mid-80s, it was a relatively small organization with very much a focus on on refugee protection being a, a legal protection function uh, the function which defined the organization um, but something that needed greater buy in from at the political level so there was a big move at the time to put the refugee, uh, refugee issue on the political agenda. That was one of these catch cries that people were repeating and repeating, put it on the political agenda, put it on the political agenda. I asked myself, with the benefit of 26-plus uh, years since that time, whether that was a good idea. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I have noticed over the period a huge politicisation of the refugee agenda. Many more states engaging with it. UNHCR's executive committee, its intergovernmental body, was a relatively small body at the time, some 30 states. Now it's in the hundreds, the membership of that state. It used to be a body where members defined their membership in terms of their commitment to the humanitarian cause, their belief in human rights, and defined their, their role as the role to help the international community and the UN system do refugee protection better. When I left UNHCR, and I'm not speaking as UNHCR at all now, with apologies, Thomas, you can report that, (laughs) not talking for UNHCR. When I left UNHCR, uh, that executive committee was not that sort of body anymore. It was a much more politicised body. States were acting as groups of states, not individual states committed to the refugee cause, They were speaking on behalf of the geographic grouping to which they belonged rather than on the basis of their own policies. And they were very much more influenced by large constellations, whether they were representing donor countries and had the money or whether they were representing host states, etc. The debate qualitatively changed the kind of conclusions that the um, governments were prepared to reach on refugee Uh, protection changed; they were reduced to the lowest common denominator of refugee protection, um, and it was all about damage limitation. So that is the first trend. What I regard as a negative, uh, in my experience, the politicization of the refugee debate. Um, I think another trend is that asylum fatigue is here to stay. There's a lot of talk over years about states having difficulties, more and more difficulties granting asylum being fatigued by it, being concerned by the unacceptable costs now that asylum was seeking, was bringing with it, the sort of political fallout for governments, ministers fall, governments fall, depending on how they handle refugee issues. Um, So asylum fatigue has set in. Um, There are a lot of reasons for it. Some of them are quite understandable and some of them are, are good, some of them are less so. There's the ballooning size of the refugee problem, which we heard about earlier, there's the elusiveness of solutions that was talked about. Um, there's the fact that refugee situations go on and on for years; they're very protracted. There's unequal burden sharing. There's a fear that uh, transnational crime and people smuggling has infiltrated the whole refugee dynamic to a point where refugee arrivals represent a serious security threat to states, etc. There's a whole range of reasons for it, but finding asylum on acceptable conditions is becoming more and more difficult. I think that's gone along with a retreat away from multilateralism on the part of quite a number of participants in the international debate, a sort of return to sovereignty and the protections of sovereignty the disinterest in seeing refugee protection handled in the context of uh, rule of law, international instruments, et cetera, um, a greater uh, concern about ensuring pragmatism is possible, Um, decisions can be taken within a a framework of um, choice rather than international obligation, international responsibility. Also, I have seen as a trend what I call the vanishing bottom lines. There was a day when there were lines that were not crossed, even if situations were complicated and situations did bring with them their costs. States were prepared to say, OK, there are certain things we cannot do in any good conscience. I find that in a number of parts of the world now, those lines have got a lot more fluid that you even have to look at what's the sort of things that are happening in Australia today when you have refugee policies where the 1951 Refugee Convention is completely out of the picture as a, as a framework for it. Um, where you see uh, very questionable deterrence uh, arrangements built in to keep refugee problems at bay rather than address them in a, in a more uh, open and, and, and humanitarian context. So vanishing bottom lines, I think that's a really very worrying threat. Fifth one, my fifth Second to last one is that the refugee concept has been losing its definition over recent times. And I know a lot of you out there will say, well, it's really important to engage with refugee problems in the context of the broader migration discussion. It's really important to understand that refugees are a species of migrant or be a specialized species of migrant, that there be complementarity between the two global compacts, for example fine, well and good. But refugees are not migrants and in the traditional sense of the word they exist within a framework of international rights and responsibilities. And when you start to redefine the refugee as a species of migrant, you play into the hands of those who want to manage refugee protection as a migration control process rather than as a process of uh, implementation of rights and respect for responsibilities. Finally, I think there's been, I'm talking very fast, and this is terrible generalizations on all of these issues, you could go into much deeper uh, into all of these. I think there's a fair amount of confusion at the international level as well, and in the UN system in particular. The system has been going through a period of transition. Uh, There's been a lot more push on the system to do its job in a, in a different way, for agencies to become more coordinated, to work within a one United Nations framework, to be part of integrated missions which integrate the politics of the United Nations and the intergovernmental relations aspect with the humanitarian assistance and of course with the development aspect of it, which I do think is, I take aside from all these negative trends and say it's a very positive one. Um, but What it has done, I think, has um, led to some confusion of mandates in in the system. It's led to a plethora of processes, new arrangements, uh, which maybe in the future will lead to greater coordination, greater coherence. But in my view, and this is a personal view, and I'm sure it's not shared by a lot of people, but in my view, it has led to um, more disparate approaches to protection rather than consolidated approaches. It's led to agencies who thought they knew what they were supposed to be doing, perhaps no longer knowing as clearly as they did in the past what their orientation should be, who speaks for them, what voice in the UN system is, is the voice that should be speaking from a policy point of view. And it has created confusion, I think, in the minds of many parties with whom the system has to has to react, not only the governments but the extra government forces out there and the paramilitaries and the, the sort of uh, um, unofficial parties to conflict. You know, who is what? We're, what is neutrality in this day and age when you find the UN system humanitarian organisations having to work very closely with the national militaries in countries, with the peacekeeping forces, etc. There's some necessity involved here, but there's also a level of confusion which has come into the system and has created a much more complicated working environment for uh, a number of those who are involved in, in protection. So this is all a bit negative. We've had a certain dose of positivism throughout this uh, uh, very, very interesting conference today when there's been a focus on the global compacts and where they might take us and where they're leading. So I'm talking backwards up to today. I'm not talking from today onwards to the future. Um, but the upshot of it all is that delivering protection is a function which has become less clear rather than more clear, more complicated rather than less complicated, Uh, and I think one needs to sort of sit back and look at some of these trends and put them up to analysis and really see if we are going in the right direction in all these areas.
1: Thank you very much, Erica. That was really comprehensive. Um, Seeing as you just qualified what you said as talking about where we've come from and how we've gotten here. Do you want to say anything about your hopes or um, concerns about where the compacts might go and whether they're the vehicle to take us forward in this context that you've just described?
2: Well, I've listened to all of those who have put them to much greater study than I have today. And I'm very heartened by uh, the comments of people like Guy, for example, that these compacts do have the potential to be a game-changer if they're approached um, in terms of their objects and purposes, uh, to use a good legal term for international conventions. Um, I have been very involved in a predecessor set of consultations, which took place in the early 2000s, called the Global Consultations on International Protection. It was not the same sort of process, but there are parallels it did generate a document which at the time was hailed as a document which had the ability to be a game changer, the so-called agenda for international protection. And for a number of years, it was actually an important reference point for governments when they were looking at their refugee policies and they would come and present. They were required to present an account of what they were doing to implement this agenda for protection. They used to come to the executive committee and other bodies and they would talk about it. And you had a sense that things were happening and the agenda was slowly but surely being implemented. But that debate changed. That debate changed as the refugee situation grew Mm. and became more expensive and more protracted and more complicated. And slowly but surely, that agenda for protection started to become a document which uh, states were using rather defensively to hold UNHCR to account for what it was actually doing to implement the terms and conditions of that agenda, rather than a document which they held themselves to account for the implementation of their own document. My fear for the global compacts, and I may be entirely wrong here because it's a much more comprehensive document that covers many more areas than did that Agenda for Protection but my fear is that unless it's carefully watched by all of you out there, the advocacy community, the academic community the civil society bodies unless it's carefully watched it could turn on its head and become a kind of document which those who should be implementing in fact turn to those who helped to act in a secretariat capacity to negotiate and say, OK, what are you doing, rather than what we're doing? One fear. Second fear is that um, it could lead, perhaps, to states doing a little bit more of what they're already doing, because there's quite a lot in that compact which is not new. It's stated in a new way, but it's not so new. Uh, Either doing a little bit more of what they're already doing or doing a little bit better what they're already doing but not really moving in the direction of new, innovative ways, which is one of its purposes, to encourage that. So my hope is that none of that eventuates, and that is that this document really is the beginning of a new way of looking at international cooperation, international burden sharing and responsibility sharing. And it is not just... I apologise to my UN colleagues, but it's not just another UN process where people in Geneva say one thing and they say another thing when they come home uh, to their capitals.
1: Thank you, Erica. Um, Speaking of Geneva, John, um, we wondered if you could share with us a bit about um, your experience there in terms of the multilateral negotiating environment and the competing pressures at play on a a kind of day-to-day basis in terms of your role to start
3: with. Well, thanks, Leanne, and thank you for the invitation. Thanks to the Caldors for a fantastic contribution and to the Centre for its work. Um, I was very struck by Anne Richard's comments this morning about smart and uh, caring Australians and citizen diplomats. I think we've got a room full of those people who really are uh, actors in this process. Um, And one distinctive feature of Geneva was very much the role of civil society in the multi-stakeholder model. Um, My comments are absolutely personal. I've retired from the Foreign Service, but obviously I'm influenced by my culture, my tribe, which is a sort of foreign service tribe. And uh, let me just say that uh, in terms of advocacy, some people, I think, forget um, frameworks. And one framework I'd encourage you to have a look at is the Foreign Policy White Paper, last year, 2017. There are three things that struck me. This is just a quick aside before I get on to Geneva. One was the focus on values as a national interest. And I think for Australians, uh, a fair go is a national interest. Human rights are a national interest. So I think in advocacy, you should think about citing that back to the government because I think it's an important point. The second one is basically the rules-based global order and clearly the refugee and migration conversation is all about the rules-based global order. In one area, we have a well-established framework um, under pressure, sure, but you know, there's a convention and, uh, and jurisprudence and background, but migration is a very fluid area where I think uh, certainly from my point of view... Australia's national interests are served by uh, better governance of of migration globally, respecting national sovereignty, using the toolkit, different visa categories, labor market planning, all the things that we've done for decades in Australia, everyone has to do these days, whether you're a a transit country, a sending or receiving country. So there's a really interesting conversation out there about how we can basically put the rules-based order uh, construct around this migration conversation, because I think, as as has been said, uh, no one country can actually manage migration globally. Clearly, um, in terms of the the environment in Geneva, perhaps I can make some... some, uh, So the third third point I meant to make about the white paper is regional engagement, and we had a session just before this on various processes in the region Bali process, and the question was legitimately raised about patience and long-term. and We have to run the long race. This is going to be a long term plan. 50 years ago, who thought ASEAN would be where it is? 600 million people with income. This is a serious global block. I think expectations have risen. These countries need to deliver certain things. But how you manage that conversation respectfully, it's a very diverse part of the world. Um, and Those of you who work in the region know what I'm talking about. How you moderate the volume. I mean, this is really something that's case by case. And uh, I think all of us have responsibilities to use our networks. Uh, to convey those messages that we're not going anywhere, we live in this region, we want the system to work, we want regional cooperation and uh, uh, governments have a three year political cycle, a one year budget cycle but this is a 10, 20 year uh, challenge and I think the Rohingya crisis in, uh, in Myanmar and Bangladesh is, a, is in a way an opportunity to get people to back off on immediate solutions. This is going to be a very difficult problem to un- unravel and maybe we can use that for a bit more strategic patience and, and careful uh, building block activity. So, with those quick asides, um, Geneva, very rapidly, um, vast agenda. um, So, as the PR, basically, I covered a multitude of issues. Um, The experts run the negotiations, uh, basically the humanitarians, mostly foreign ministry and development ministry people. I think there's a challenge there in getting the justice ministries, the interior ministries, into those negotiations, and we've seen it a bit in the GCM process. That's a good start. Uh, you see it in health, where the health ministries show up to WHO meetings, and that culture is very fresh and robust. Public health people call a spade a spade. You need to engage those people in this conversation. Uh, diplomats, foreign ministry people have their own culture and agenda, but we need to get those agencies who do the day-to-day work on migration into those discussions. Not, not an easy issue, multi-dimensional, very complex, uh, and I think that's something that we need to think about. Um, Erica mentioned the issue about you know, inclusion, exclusion, who's playing. And I was very struck in Geneva, some delegations just opted out of many issues. Um, They're busy with other things. Uh, The frontline states, if I can use that term, were extremely exasperated with lack of respect for their concerns. And uh, I think there's a big job for us to look at what's happening in those frontline states. In Syria, the Ethiopians of this world, very creative um, and really respect their challenges and do what we can to help them, because they really are carrying a huge burden and they're getting very annoyed with a lot of rhetoric that doesn't actually deliver anything for them. So, um, a very patchy engagement in Geneva on, on, on refugee issues. I mean, the good news in some ways is that there was a bit of pushback on the refugee compact from states who said more state led, not UNHCR led. I think that dissipated, and in my sense, that was a good thing because the compact sort of sailed through fairly smoothly. It was well established on the basis of the reports of the High Commissioner. So, Good in a way that, um, that, that that there wasn't a lot of controversy about the refugee uh, compact. But uh, as people have said this morning and this afternoon, very important building block. And the fact that it's not binding, I think, is not a critical issue. It's really it provides a framework that we can really use. Um, Geneva is very siloed. Uh, kept on discovering things in different contexts. Um, how we join the dots is, I think, a very important role for ambassadors there. And we certainly would. Try to do that, but the system is extremely complex, as Eric has said, and just finding out what 's going on uh, is a s- struggle. Um, I think uh, Travis talked about modern slavery and trafficking and uh, there 's an alliance eight point seven sort of multilateral coalition uh, to try to coordinate u n activity, but even that is struggling with the, with complexity in silos so I think all of you need to try and encourage more centralisation, I think Erika made the very good point that complexity is making it very difficult to have one UN, but we have to try to draw the strands together. Even something like statelessness, which seems very obvious and discreet, there are many tracks running on statelessness and uh, to keep track of all of that, um, even for the experts, is, 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 is not easy. Um, clearly in Geneva, I mean, this is a personal view, I found it quite Eurocentric, and uh, we had two crises, you know, uh, by jail, of course, Syria, which affected Europe dramatically, and then the Mediterranean, the African exodus. Um, and I think that was very unfortunate in m- merging this jurisprudence on, on refugees and migration and really complicated things enormously, but it was through the prism of a, a, a Europe, and I think, you know, a lot of other countries were quite frustrated with the sort of Euro focus and some of the Africans spoke up. Uh, on the basis that this was a sort of skewed view of what was going on in the world. Um, The Rohingya crisis obviously focused more attention on the uh, Indo-Pacific, and I should say that issue did generate a lot of focus on behalf of um, uh, delegations in our part of the world, missions in our part of the world. But again, how ASEAN countries over time have more of a global multilateral role is a very important challenge, I think, for all of us. Um, Leanne said five minutes, so I feel like the Human Rights Council will you have a minute Mm -hmm. and a half, so I'll be very quick, and obviously questions are more important than my comments. Protracted crises—a huge issue for the multilateral system. Um, the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016 was running in parallel uh, with this conversation that led to the summits in New York. You know, how do we get the uh, development-humanitarian systems to deliver together? You know, multi-year funding, um, uh, untied funding, and Australia—I think—was trying very hard to encourage more flexibility, and that that untied multi-year funding lets the UN respond to crises. So I hope we can sustain that that role because it's a very important contribution to crisis response. But there are challenges. Uh, Countries with uh, long-term refugee problems don't like the development model because it entrenches the refugee problem. So we have to be sensitive to those dynamics uh, and, and look at creative solutions. A lot of focus on root causes. Very striking that the new Secretary-General announced his first priority was prevention, but I don't really see a UN response that's coordinated on prevention. We see bits of it, peace building, uh, root causes. But I think that prevention agenda is so critical. And uh, from my money, Australia and others should get behind a a very big focus on prevention. Uh, There's been quite a successful move in the disaster risk reduction area to focus on natural disasters. But I think that, that philosophy needs to be across the system. Um, Good news, things like innovation. UNHCR was leading the charge on uh, creative use of mobile telephony, uh, payments to people in the field, uh, using GPS uh, imagery. But but that dynamic has really changed the client expectations. I was talking to one humanitarian colleague saying, well, how do you basically manage a Syrian customer, client who wants to talk about education for their kids? This is not a bottle of water and and, uh, housing. It's basically a long-term view. And a lot of our humanitarian colleagues in the field are not... Uh, able to manage those sorts of issues. So the the sophistication of the the client requirements is another issue that I think we often overlook. The pressures are enormous. UNHCR is under huge pressure, tremendous respect for the brand, but how do we help UNHCR do its job and do its core business? Um, Clearly, I think this mixing up of refugees and migrants hasn't been helpful. A lot of customers go to the UNHCR because there's no other queue, and that just tangles UNHCR in a lot of work they don't have to do. I'm, I'm saying complicated. There are mixed flows and there are grey cases, but the, in many cases it's pretty clear-cut that people are not in the right queue, but there's nowhere else to go. So I think we have to really try to protect UNHCR and protect its mandate. Um, I guess there's a broader question. What is the intervention doing multilaterally? And we were starting to talk in Geneva about w- what are we doing? You know, our, We're throwing UN solutions. Our expectations are quite unrealistic. We're expecting the UN to perform miracles. Uh, and when they don't, uh, of course, that feeds the uh, the agenda that's anti-multilateralism. So for my money, you know, we should be saying, what, what is the intervention doing? Are we actually creating more national systems that are resilient? Are we empowering local actors? Uh, what is the intervention from outside doing? And I think in many cases, we, we should be much more surgical and specific in what we're asking the UN to do. Um, the Trump administration, and delivered a very um, sobering uh, account this morning. Um, the United States has to be at the table. This is a critical thunder and a critical player in terms of political leadership. So how do we manage this new way of doing things under the Trump administration, we have to draw them into the process. Uh, if they're not there, the system is damaged. And uh, I think all of us who want the system to operate have to be very careful about reform that might feed the critics of the multilateral system. It's a very awkward time when we know a lot of things don't work very well, frankly. Um, but we, we have to be very careful not to feed the, the beast that's basically saying, cut it down, because it's going to be very, very hard to rebuild a lot of structures we have if we demolish them. Um, Protection. I think Eric has given a very good account of that. I'm not an expert, but I was very struck at how many elements of protection there are floating around in Geneva. It's not just UNHCR. It's being close to people in the field. I was very struck walking into the Human Rights Council after leaving it 30 years before the Human Rights Commission. Accountability is a big issue uh, internationally. Uh, How do we actually work on that? pushback on gender. I was shocked in the Human Rights Council at the cynical attempt to roll back uh, progress on gender. But the whole gender uh, agenda for the UN is very important for protection. So I'm not sure we've aggregated all those sort of themes together to really uh, drive a protection uh, program. So many things happening, um, very complex and a very critical period. But I guess my bottom line is a few people made comments about Australia being dealt out. I mean, I was in Geneva up till the end of 2017 and everybody expected us, Australia, to have the creative ideas. How will you solve these problems? You guys have done multilateralism for decades. You've built coalitions. You believe in a rules-based system. What do we do now? And I think um, it's it's incumbent upon all of us to think creatively. We need your help. Governments need your creative help. And uh, one message I delivered when I left Geneva to everybody in Australia was there's an agenda there. How can we use it in terms of national interests? And I come back to values. Um, I I think we're not thinking creatively enough about how we basically take this agenda forward. So that's really my appeal. Um, there's an agenda there. We have a place. Sure, there are challenges, but I think we are expected to lead on these issues, and I hope we can, particularly on migration. We can talk a bit about that in a minute, but uh, I think there are very important areas where we really have a contribution to make. But that's a very quick once over lightly, and Thank questions you. welcome.
1: Thanks a lot, John. Um, and just one very quick last question from me before we open up to the floor. Um, Bill, earlier today in his presentation, talked about the challenges of participating in diplomatic negotiations as a civil society or an advocacy organization. And then he talked about the clever ways that Human Rights Watch um, works with or works government. Um, And I wondered, uh, because we discussed it briefly earlier, if you could say a little bit more about some of the more practical aspects of cooperating or collaborating with civil society in your role in Geneva. Um, You mentioned some of the more pragmatic ways of, of cooperation.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, very quickly, I want to give time for questions, so I'll be very, very brief. But I guess the first thing is really to try to defend civil society space. There's a concerted effort to to curb the voice of civil society in Geneva, and I think it's very important we push back on that, and Australia has done that. um, So that's a very important point. I guess the other appeal I'd make, and I, I think Tamara made this very good point about letting things settle a bit, now you know it's interesting i used to do this work years ago on human rights work and in those days i think the pressures on ngos were less dramatic i mean these days you know social media funding it's very tough to be an ngo it's a tough to be a government official too but just respect the different agendas and uh, if, if you if you understand the, the ground rules i think it makes life a lot easier and i certainly found in geneva we had some tough encounters with ngos i mean they didn't like government policy but we had a very respectful relationship we listened very carefully we learned things and i think hopefully reciprocated so you know, I, I think this this collaboration is really important this sort of thoughtful discussion respecting different points of view uh, and we can learn a lot and I come back to the point we need your creative ideas you know we need a five-year plan on this stuff we need to think about you know, we'll come back to this later, but you know, what, what should IOM look like in five years' time? You know, UNHCR, how does it evolve uh, you know, in a real world? What needs to be done in terms of managing the pressures on it? So you know, we need your creative input. And you've got advocacy, and there'll be you know barji But we really do need some creative thinking about how to make this system work, because we're really in a tough place. And if, we f- if we're too critical, we undercut a system that's going to be very hard to rebuild and disarm and whatever human rights. I mean, the Human Rights Office is under more pressure than UNHCR, I have to say. I mean, they really are struggling um, with all sorts of problems. It's UN heavy, you know, the intervention, there's no budget, and, you know, there, there are really issues we have to think through. We live in the Asia Pacific region, we have to engage different countries, we have to be patient, and I, I'm not sure we've necessarily injected those thoughts into our longer term plan. So, you know, think long term, have a strategy, you'll have to change it as things evolve, but we need your help in, you know, in that sort of broad consensus. You know, Australia Inc., whole of whole of society, I think Tamara mentioned. This is exactly what we need to be doing. Long term, governments come and go, budgets come and go, but this is is a long term national narrative we need to get right. Thank
1: you very much. All right, I think we have a microphone going around the room. Um, Let's have some questions for the panel. I see one right here in the middle. Hi. um, I have a question with regards to how we negotiate with certain... States. So we're seeing a phenomenon around the world, in Australia included, where a very carefully crafted narrative has been established whereby asylum seekers are an existential threat at worst or a criminal at best, and then we have policies that are, are beholden to that narrative. How do we engage with these states that have illustrated a reticence to um, offer protection or an outright refusal to engage with protection. Thank you. Who'd like to take that?
2: Well, I think, just to kick it off, I think um, we set a good example. Somebody this morning talked about uh, Australia leading by example, and if by by we you mean Australia as opposed to we you mean civil society or as and that we can
1: move
2: well then I can turn the answer that I started to give a little bit around and say that we try and encourage states to act or, or encourage good examples, more good examples rather than bad examples out there, I think. Bad examples travel well, and good examples are harder to find. So I think bringing them to public light and and, and exposing them, I think, is is quite important. I believe, as I sort of intimated earlier, that uh, there is a lot of misunderstanding about uh, refugees, refugee protection, migration, migrants, what are the dynamics of the problems today. And I think it's incumbent on all of us in our different areas to try and correct these misunderstandings and bring the facts back. I, I know that Anne said this morning, and I fully agree with her, that facts are not necessarily going to change something, but it's essentially what we have. Uh, And we need to make sure that in whatever decisions are taken and whatever policies are followed, that facts are very much to the fore. Um, There's a lot of um, misuse or abuse of the facts in the sort of countries you're talking about, where the facts are distorted to support uh, much more negative policies. And I'm a great believer in bringing them back. Um, I think it's important to explore alternative ways of conveying messages. Um, I've also been, I think personally, a bit concerned about the inability of a lot of people in in, in my working environment, myself included actually, to find the words to convey situations that people who are not as expert or not as familiar with situations understand and empathise with. I don't think we've necessarily found the language that we need, the vocabulary we need to discuss the issues, to have them on the table and to promote positive directions. Uh, I think the, and I think John, you alluded to this actually as well, I think the, uh, it's, it's really very important to understand the other side, to understand what it is that's driving uh, certain policies, driving states to do things. There is a bit of a tendency to talk at, not talk with, to uh, go for a maximum rather than negotiate a compromise. Uh, And I I think there's a a lot of this, unfortunately, has crept into a polarized debate around refugee issues, and it's very important. Then my final point is I, I do really, and I didn't do it justice when I mentioned it earlier, but it is important to keep the refugee concept, the notion of asylum, to to keep it at its core what it is and not allow it to be redefined to the point where it's lost its humanitarian, its rights and responsibilities basis. And I see a lot of the discussion today which sort of makes these really rather false distinctions between asylum on the one hand and refugees on the other, as if refugees are those people who arrive in large mass influx situations um, into neighbouring countries from refugee-producing situations, and uh, those who come further afield are no longer understood in the refugee context, but they're understood in a context of illegality or a context of abuse or a context of even a migration context. One has to fight against that because when you allow concepts to be redefined, you then um, lay the basis for policies which are no longer adjusted to the needs of the people who are part of, of, of these outflows. So keep a Keep a clarity of thought, a factual basis, uh, and uh, but one that understands the other side.
1: I think Upper joke wanted to share an example too.
2: Um, I
0: completely agree with what Erica just said. Um, having different approaches in the way you um, the way you do it, because everyone has a responsibility um, to to make a response and, and to kind of portray it. Um, and In a more honest light so two examples of this Um, so I work in local government and a project that we do is called um, refugee camp in my neighborhood and we build this installation uh, at this big park and community center where we employ um, local residents who are of refugee background or are currently seeking asylum and people um, in the community come and take a tour and through this tour, they hear stories and they learn about the refugee experience and um, what it really is and what it really looks like. Um, it takes about two hours, but it's an experience that changes minds and really changes lives um, in their perceptions. Because when they come, they say, oh, people who come by bed are illegal. Um, but then through their experience and through their engagement... Um, they're excited and pumped up to go and lobby and educate and inform um, that. And another one is through direct engagement with um, politicians and just kind of see where their head's at. Like, so why do you feel as though uh, refugees are kind of negative or what's going on? Um, so that could be through opportunities like um, giving evidence in an inquiry, um, which I had done last year. and. The, um, the Liberal um, chair was kind of like, hey, you know what? You're a pretty good example, just if everyone else was just like you, if all other refugees were just like you. And I was like, well, sir, uh, they are. Like, <laughs> just give them a chance, have a chat with them and you'll find out more. So I think it's through that engagement and, yeah, and just so they can put their guards down Um, through that conversation. John, and then we'll take some more questions.
3: Yeah, just very quickly, I think Apojok makes a really good point. And a highlight in the year for me was when the NGOs came from Australia. And these people are phenomenal. I mean, these Australians with refugee backgrounds, speaking about Australia, were the most persuasive advocates about, I think, what Australia is really about. Um, So I think that's a very important point that you make, and empowering refugees to speak up, I think we could do more in that regard, because they're the best advocates. In terms of, you know, are we carrying a huge handicap with our policy? I mean, I have to say, frankly, it's a huge issue, I know, in Australia, but people say, put it in perspective, these are tiny numbers of people. Look at, you know, uh, Turkey or or, uh, or Ethiopia with their vast numbers of refugees. I think sometimes we lose perspective a bit. I'm not saying there's not issues that need to be discussed, so... I think people still expect us to lead, and uh, I, I don't think it's a huge impediment for our, our traditional negotiating strategies, which are building coalitions and doing all the things you do, listening to the other side. And I think you know diplomacy still works, and I do worry a bit. People are panicking with social media and the new way the Trump administration does business. I mean, diplomacy still works, and those still those, that talk it is still important. And you know, I think we need to work on our region, particularly that long-term uh, consolidation of engagement is really very important. and it's a tricky issue for us. I mean, if you look at, at the human rights area, you know, the gold standard, in my view, is, say, Sri Lanka coming to the Human Rights Council, joining a consensus resolution, reporting back to the council. You want countries to actually engage. A lot of countries are just bailing out of the human rights system. So people criticised the government at the time for being soft, but, I mean, it wasn't being soft. It was actually trying to get outcomes on the ground. So... Again, you know, NGOs have a different view and advocacy is fine, but just respect the fact that there may be a longer-term agenda which is actually more focused on practical outcomes. And, again, we need help, you know, navigating all this, finding the right balance, because uh, you do need pressure, but you also need cooperation. And I think getting the right balance is really not straightforward. And I do worry a lot of countries are just walking away from the the framework, uh, you know, the, the, the attacks on the human rights uh, commissioner the, uh, the refugee commissioner i mean there's a concerted effort to attack the institutions of the multilateral system and that's something you know is uh, you know we don't like it always australia we don't like to be criticized but that's part of the membership you know, you join the club, that's what you, you get. Um, we have a you know a standing invitation to rapporteurs to come to Australia They like criticise us. I think there are some due process issues there, but, you know, that's part of the deal. Um, and, you know, if, if we can't get people to understand this is a toolkit to solve national problems, I think we've got a problem and we need to reboot this conversation, you know. It's, it's problem solving. It's not going to the UN to be hammered or copy criticism, whether it's the Refugee Convention or the human rights structures or... Or economic development we're trying to solve problems not create them and i'm not sure we've got quite the right rhetoric on that uh, at the moment
1: um guy did you have a question
3: <clears throat> thank you very much it's something um that erica brought up in her presentation the consolidated approach to protection as something that may have been lost or something that may still be needed. I wonder if you could give us a brief outline of what that might look like. And, and actually, John, given your involvement, I know you disclaimed any, any knowledge of protection, but you've been deeply involved in human rights from the Geneva perspective. And I recognize what you say when you talk about the long-term view, but protection itself can often be of immediate, and immediate need, and whether you have a view on that particular view as well, thinking institutionally.
2: Erica? I knew there was a danger in trying to talk too fast and <laughs> put too much into, a, into five minutes. Um, what I meant was that the UN system is, has for some time now been encouraged by the state's who who oversee it, who run it and who benefit from it, has been encouraged by civil society, the non-government organisations who partner with it, etc., to get its act together, to cease to function as a, a set of Sort of number of different entities with small Charlemagnes on top of them, you know, all defending their turf and defending their mandates, but really to act in a much more consolidated, coherent, and cooperative way together, to avoid overlap, to avoid um, competition for a small pot of money out there, but to make sure that it's it's spent in a in a more sensible way. Um, Uh, in a more coherent coherent way. Now I think that's fine and it is something that is long overdue I think in the United Nations system and it's been a goal that uh, states have set for themselves in interacting with the United Nations system for some time to produce greater coherence coordination cooperation consolidation in the system. However from a from the perspective of a, an organisation which works on behalf of people, and here this is my own personal opinion again, it's nothing to do with UNHCR's you know, standing standing view or anything, but from the seeing it, having worked within an organisation that is there to protect people and has a mandate which is an obligatory mandate, not a discretionary mandate, one which doesn't have to depend on being invited in to an issue, but one which requires the organisation actually to take a stand and to engage. It's a rather combative mandate and it also brings an organisation like UNHCR or you know a body like the uh, High of, Office of the High Commission of Human Rights into direct conflict with states sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. There will inevitably be disagreements and um, it's really very important for um, the, the, the integrity of an organization like UNHCR or High Commission of Human Rights or others involved in these humanitarian activities that they can act in a neutral way, that they can act outside you know, a, a broader framework of politics and, um, uh, and even to some extent development. Now when the UN works in a consolidated way, and you have these integrated missions, and you have the political arm of the UN, and the humanitarian arm of the UN, and the development arm of the UN, all working together under one coordinated framework. And here, I'm not talking, obviously, about the Secretary General and the the office. I'm talking about a sort of more um, where you have one voice, policy voice speaking for the UN, and you, you you these agencies are seen to be working together as part of a coordinated activity. There will be inevitable confusion in the minds of the beneficiaries of the activities of these organisations, uh, in the minds of the antagonists to these organisations as to where, whether, they're not, whether they really are neutral or not, or whether they're just part of this bigger, broader um, political set of activities of the UN, uh, which is can compromise their independent action on behalf of individuals. Here I'm not letting it all hang out, I'm trying to be a bit more. So I am not 100% sure that it is to the benefit of humanitarian operations um, that they be integrally included into a broader one United Nations. I'll give you a small example and then I'll stop. I was delivering um, a protection training course in South Darfur at one point. And in this little hall, there were a lot of local sheiks who were all gathered together and they'd come to listen to the representative of UNHCR talk about refugee protection in Darfur. And I could see their eyes glaze over at some point and they... They they started to ask me very strange questions, but I won't go into all the questions they asked, but a couple of them struck home. One of them was, we don't understand what you are anymore, UNHCR. You have a mandate we thought we understood, but in actual fact now any organisation in the UN system that comes to us and we interact with them in one form or another, they say they're doing protection and they say they're doing policy and they say they're responsible for refugees, etc., in our mind, they all have very different mandates, and so we don't understand protection itself has lost its definition and lost its independence. That's one thing they said to me, which I thought was actually quite enlightened of them. But another thing they said to me is they said, you know, we've got the, – the UN system is all about accountability now, which is really important. You mentioned accountability, and I'm fully behind it, and I think it is really important. But for these people, they said, what is accountability? Accountability is the International Criminal Court. And we've seen how the International Criminal Court works in Sudan. And what we know is the International Criminal Court is all about um, sending its arms, its, uh, its, its people who work in this system uh, on its behalf to gather evidence to lay the claim against our uh, president. And we see all of you organizations now so totally linked to these activities of the International Criminal Court, we think that really you're there under the guise of uh, collecting evidence so that there can be prosecutions um, at high levels in our country. So we're not interested in facilitating your activities and we're not interested in cooperating with you. I just give that as an example of a sort of confusion of understand the confusion in understanding what, what is what what I was there to do and why, and how did I fit in with all of these other activities of the UN and what did it mean in terms of um, our ability to act and fulfil our responsibilities to the beneficiaries. John?
3: I don't have a a quick answer to the sort of quick response challenge of of, uh, of, uh, reform, et cetera. I mean, I guess there are precedents elsewhere... I mean, one of the problems is how you actually brief the Security Council to deal with issues, and there's a lot of focus now on early warning, and I'm perhaps more familiar with the human rights uh, paradigm where the High Commissioner does brief the council and there's a lot of focus on early warning. But like Canary in the in the coal mine, if you've got a human rights problem, you know it's going to get probably get worse if you don't deal with it. So I think there is a sort of scope for cross-pollination and looking at responses. You know, in the Human Rights Council reprisals, if there are reprisals against NGOs, there's an immediate... A response from the President of the Council, it's quiet diplomacy, and I think there may well be scope for more quiet diplomacy on sort of emergency response issues, but I don't know enough about it to really respond, but I think Eric is right that it's, there's this balance, you know, you've got so many strands running that are relevant to protection, how you keep clarity in the UNHCR's role, but also um, add, or how can I put it, build on the other streams and, you know, look at the work that's been done on, on disability as well as gender. Very, very powerful. And look at Syria, the number of people with disability who come out the end of that that terrible conflict. Um, You know, we need to think about disability and and empowering disabled uh, refugees from Syria to deal with their future. So there are a lot of angles to this that we need to think through. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. I can just mention one thing that I forgot to mention earlier, which I think people sort of forget about. We haven't really talked about it today, but just going back to migration for a second, I apologise for abusing the microphone. But, you know, people forget most migration in the world is actually legal and successful. So I think that's the message Australia should keep keep making. Irregular migration is difficult and a headache, but basically the majority of migration works. And look at Australia, you know, it's a huge success story. And a lot of it's south-south. Uh, that's also forgotten. So I think, you know, this point about facts and evidence, to reboot this debate into context, you know, we have our issues with uh, regional processing and boat people, but, I mean, look at the globe, look at our concerns in perspective. I'm not not downplaying them, but a lot of other countries get a bit annoyed when we keep saying, well, here's this issue. They say, well, what about us? We're we're deluded. So I think proportionality, uh, understanding the world that's out there, looking at our region long-term... Uh, We need to think about that. And I I get the point that advocacy in Australia is very focused on concerns about government policy. But, you know, we need your help on the broader agendas and uh, this longer-term stuff is really quite challenging. And you know things that governments don't know and uh, you've got um, contacts that governments don't have and you can do things governments can't do. So, uh, again, it's sort of horses for courses. We need to figure out how we can all contribute to get a better outcome on this.
1: Thanks, John. I want to try and get in one or two questions before we wrap up. So are there any other hands that missed out? Um, yes, here, and... And then the gentleman, two seats along from you, and then we'll finish up, and we'll ask for brief responses from the panel.
4: Excellent. Um, I, I guess my question is for all of you, but I want to come back to trends that you spoke about, Erica, and, I mean, it comes back to what Anne touched on um, at the beginning of the day... Um, this sort of shift in the use of language. You talked about politicisation um, of the refugee issue, but um, you've touched on as well the use of language and one thing that hasn't really been uh, raised is Islamophobia and the way that Islamophobia has now been used by groups to, to rail against refugees and the fact that even the Australian government we'll talk about when we're resettling uh, Syrian Iraqis that we're going to be focusing on minorities and we're going to be taking Christians, so don't worry, it's all okay. Um, and I'd be very keen on, on your reflections around the use of language and, and particularly around Islamophobia as a, as a trend that we're now having to deal with. And I guess, John, you know, from your perspective, working in Geneva, when governments like Australia or others talk about we're taking Christians, so don't worry, or you know, the, the anti-Islam rhetoric we're seeing in, in Europe, how do you then engage with governments like Jordan and, and Lebanon and Turkey around their responsibilities if if at the same time there's this implicit message that single Muslim men are obviously crazy and dangerous um, when you're talking to Islamic governments. Um, and, yeah, Apajok, I guess in terms of the trends that you've seen working with, with refugee youth around the world, you know, is this a, a common experience, the language and the shift in language around refugees that, that youth not just in Australia but others are, are also facing? So be really keen on... On reflections from all of you on, on that Thank question you.
1: we might take the last question at the same time and the panelists can respond to both thanks
4: okay um I mean thankfully <clears throat> there are more and more calls for or effort being put into ensuring participation among those with lived and currently living refugee experience and so I guess this question is primarily for Apajok, but I would be great to hear from everybody on Examples of platforms that you've engaged with that have done that well, um, that have been a positive experience in terms, in terms of facilitating that kind of engagement, and if you feel like there are none, um, you can also talk about bad experiences, I guess, but it could be at the very local, national, or it could be at the global levels, but experiences where you feel like that has been done well.
0: Thank you. Do you want to start up? Sure. Um, I'll start off with the last question just then. Um, Fortunately for me, I have had really great engagements in regards to um, really influencing decision-making and really being mentored in doing that uh, because I think, um, sadly, some people can fall in the trap of um, having refugee voices heard um, but in a tokenistic manner where, hey, come along, come sit at the table with us and let's have a chat, let us know what your thoughts are. But they haven't really been told, hey, by the way, you can't just um, speak unless you've put up your tag or unless you put your hand up um, or you speak through the chair. They haven't really been trained in what the processes are or what the languaging is for that. Um one of the most recent examples I have had um, was being a part of the Global Summit of Refugees. I think that's, that's what it was called. Um, it was phenomenal. It was, I think, 67 um, refugee advocates from around the world came together in Geneva um, to discuss what does refugee representation look like, what does refugee advocacy look like. We want to go beyond storytelling. We want to go beyond, hey, let's get the refugee to come and say what has happened to them, Um, but really go past that and say, hey, but what do you think would be a great policy, or what do you think would be the great way to respond to this, and how can we support you to be able to respond or to be able to participate um, in the most effective way possible? And not only internationally, but let's take a back and let's see how we can be engaging refugees in all foras, local, national, um, regional, and so forth. Um, an example of where it really came out um, quite well was being a part of the gender audit, um, which was led by um, Linda and Eileen for the forced migration unit here, which was we saw the change within three to four months. Um, seeing our recommendations from the research we conducted um, come out and see the change in in wording, like you said earlier, Graham, um, the dialogue, the words you use really make a huge impact. So instead of calling refugees um, vulnerable people or women and girls, they're vulnerable, um, let's change that. Let's say they have capacity, but they've been placed in a vulnerable situation. Let's not make um, the words that we use define that person in that situation. Um, I think that's something we've got to have a look at. Um, and in regards to the youth and the wording that's being used um, and the labelling that's being used, I think, um, especially locally at the moment, um, it's really making an impact in the South community being called gangs Um, has had a really negative impact in the way they interact or engage Um, really seen them really kind of close down a bit um, because the discrimination and racism that they face so I think that's something that we've all got to see how we can address it and kind of change that labelling Erica
2: I think they're both good questions and I was when I was listening to Apichok very a very uh, good presentation about uh, how you came about to be where you are and uh, the sort of aims and ambitions you have, I was quite taken by one thing you said. You said you were quite moved when your views were sought by, uh, I think it was UNHCR, and you said, these are your words, you kidding me, UNHCR, asking me for my opinion. Now, I thought about that as you went on, and I thought, gosh... It's terrible if there's an impression out there that an entity like UNHCR which deals with refugees and their concerns and their situation doesn't take account of what they have to say and regard them as a principle in all discussions. And I also thought, well, if that's the impression that's out there, there must be a reason for it. But it's actually a wrong impression. UNHCR for many years has sought to engage refugees very directly in discussions about their, uh, their future, about their situation. UNHCR has promoted very actively uh, refugee committees as, uh, as counterpoints for them in camps and in settlements, etc. So maybe they're not doing it. And you'd have to ask UNHCR whether they're doing it the right way or the best way, if there's still this impression out there that UNHCR is not engaging with refugees. You asked about uh, a forum. Um, I can remember one particularly that I had something to do with and that was uh, uh, a series of consultations with refugee women globally uh, and the purpose of those consultations was to try and understand the refugee experience that they were going through, through their own, their own words and their own impressions and the results of the consultations which were actually spearheaded uh, on behalf of UNHCR by uh, University of New South Wales. Eileen Pittaway and Linda who's here somewhere um, and those consultations led to a report which was then presented in Geneva both to governments and to the non-government world about what were the expectations of these women, what were their particular concerns and what were their suggestions to address their particular problems. I think that was a very effective way, it was an expensive way and a time consuming way but it was a very effective way of consulting. Um, I also had something to do with when I was in UNHCR with with the age, gender and diversity uh, accountability framework of that organisation and for a number of years I was responsible for overseeing its implementation and that accountability framework, amongst many other things, requires on a cascading basis from the High Commissioner down throughout the hierarchy of UNHCR, requires the organisation to uh, engage with uh, with refugees directly, but particularly uh, on an age, gender and diversity basis, and to listen to them and to bring their concerns to the fore. So that, I think, is another way of doing this, using from a sort of, on a cascading basis from um, the top right down through the organisation, making it a responsibility and accountability to engage with the population. There are many other sort of forum On the question of language, I think language is very, very important and it's often deliberately misused to create, uh, create to, to support policy. It tends to flow from policy, it tends to become a, an implementer, if you like, of certain policy directions. And I remember a very notorious uh, um, video which was prepared, I think, by the then Minister for Immigration, Mr Ruddick, um, which was... Designed to create impressions about what Australia was, language and imagery and visions of Australia designed to actually deflect people who might otherwise be interested in coming here. And you put that in the reverse and you see the same sort of focus on using language to underpin what would otherwise be regarded, I think, as unacceptable... uh, Sort of policies and programs, so language can play an important role. It can vilify people who are victims rather than villains. It can redefine them or out of the refugee concept, so that you treat them as irregular migrants. Um, so it is it is a a tool, a very important tool, and it, we need to fight very hard against its misuse and abuse. And sometimes it's just. Without thinking. And if you look at how the press tends to write about refugee issues today, they tend to mix concepts, mix asylum, mix refugees, miss, mix whatever. And that doesn't help for those who are trying to understand the problem through the words and the eyes of the press. So there needs to be a, a very particular focus, I think, on educating the media as to how to talk about what sort of language to use and what kind of language to avoid.
1: Um, we are about 10 minutes over time, but, John, do you want to make a very brief response? Oh,
3: very briefly, I guess, just obviously previous speakers have spoken about the platforms for refugees. I guess one obvious point to add is it's good to hear from the communities that have benefited from refugees and from the private sector as well. I think we haven't heard enough about that and the UN is not particularly good at uh, private sector engagement there are all sorts of reasons for that but I think that's something we should think about but clearly uh, refugees are fantastic advocates and I come back to the point uh, when our Australian refugee colleagues turn up in Geneva it was really galvanic I mean it really is something that we uh, most Australians would be very proud of but they don't know about it I mean that's an issue media I guess again Um, one point about I mean Graham's question tricky I mean I, I didn't get a lot of feedback that somehow Australia was Islamophobic but I can see there's obviously an issue incipient there. I mean the whole debate about religious freedom I think is really interesting and I come back to the point, the toolkit, the UN toolkit, how do we use the multilateral system to address social issues in Australia and I think you know part of our engagement in the human rights dialogue is actually like to understand better different cultures and, and we should be rephrasing this debate in terms of a dialogue because you know look at the the, the, um, inquiry into religious freedom in Australia a lot of tricky issues have come out of that Um, so I hope we can actually say we're learning here we make mistakes we've got some good good stories to tell as well Uh, and I think we have a contribution to make to this global conversation about more tolerant structures, because we live in an extraordinary society, you know, for a hundred years Australia was phobic about Asian migration, and in my lifetime it's not an issue, there are a few people who worry, but it's a fantastic success story, so that's a good story, but clearly there are parts of the community that are marginalised, and, you know, how do we deal with that, and there are obviously issues with um, Muslim Australians who do feel um, uh, apart. so you know, I think this is an area we can say, we, we've made mistakes, so we, we've come to the UN to try and listen and learn, and... Uh, I come back to the point, you know, use this toolkit appropriately. Some things you wouldn't want to put on the agenda, you might end up with a a disaster. But I think this is an area where we've probably got a 10-year dialogue about doing better on tolerance of other religions. And it's it's an important debate for Australia. We have to get that right. And our region has to see us um, dealing with these issues in a thoughtful way. Um, But I I didn't detect a sort of sense that we were... I mean, people understood our big resettlement role. the, you know, multiculturalism, that, that message has got across but I think you know the more complicated issues are now coming out and how we deal with them uh, is going to be very, very important and the domestic conversation about religious tolerance is quite relevant to what's happening in Geneva
1: Well look, thank you all for your questions and please join me in thanking the panel